One Night in Nihonbashi by William Boyd. Strange, Bethany Melmoth thinks, as she wanders through the empty open-plan office of the magazine where she works, Art Rat. A bit strange being here alone in the middle of the week, in the middle of a working day, she reflects. A large pink neon Art Rat sign hangs high on the wall, blinking annoyingly, the result of some malfunction in the neon. Try as she might, she can't find a way of switching it off. She strolls into Jason Mason's office. Jason is the founder and editor and sole owner of Art Rat. Independent wealth is his explanation of how he was able to start and finance a monthly art magazine. Much to his surprise, it is doing well in a crowded field. By pressing her face to the glass of the window to the right of his desk, Bethany can see half of Tate Modern. It's important to be close, Jason has always said as if somehow the building of Tate Modern emanates some art vibe, some beneficial contagion that would infect the magazine. Bethany sits behind Jason's glass desk and looks through the open door at the empty editorial space. The designer's desk, the assistant editor's desk, the sales manager's desk, all empty. Everyone struck down with a savage flu. It is November, after all, she says flu month. She is only Art Rat's intern, but she's effectively been running the magazine for the last few days as, after Jason succumbed, all the other members of staff began to be afflicted one by one. Except me, she thinks, the least regarded, the part-timer, the gopher, the coffee-maker and sandwich-fetcher, now rather pleasingly essential. Where would Art Rat be without me, she thinks opening Jason's drawers looking for a switch or a zapper for the neon sign. Her phone rings and she jumps. She runs back to her desk and answers it. Art Rat, how can I help you? Bethany, what were you doing in my office? It's Jason. I was looking for a switch for the neon sign. It's blinking. How did you know I was in your office? I can see you on my phone. It's an app. I've got a little GoPro camera in there. That's surveillance. Exactly. I need you here, now. Where are you? Jason lived in Chelsea. I'm in the Lister Hospital. Third floor, room seven. Two. The job. Jason's name is on the door except it's not his name. The sign says, Mr. Peregrine Mason. Bethany knocks and is summoned in. Jason is lying in bed with a drip in his arm. He looks terrible, drawn, pale. His shaved head seems unusually shiny with sweat. My God, Jason, she says, you look terribly ill. That's because I am terribly ill, Jason says. Full-blown pneumonia. Don't come any closer. 
I didn't know you were called Peregrine. It's an appalling name. That's why I prefer to be called Jason. Ah, not Perry Mason, then. Ha, ha. Jason smiles sardonically, then coughs. Two minutes later, he stops coughing. He gestures at a file on the armchair by his bed. Bethany darts forward, grabs it, and steps back. Everything's in there, he says. Tickets, hotel reservation, contacts, the company credit card. You're my only hope. I'm counting on you, Bethany. Artrat is counting on you. Bethany blinks. She opens the file. Of course. What do I have to do? You have to go to Japan. Me? Japan? I've never been to Japan. How amazing. How old are you, Bethany? Twenty-six. And you've never been to Japan? Good God. I've never been to Japan, I confess, Bethany says. But I'd like to go. When do I leave? Tonight. Three. The flight. Bethany has a window seat she's glad to see and even gladder to discover that there's an empty seat between her and the next person, a businessman, she thinks, on his phone until the very last minute. She might be able to stretch out, though she imagines she won't get much sleep, such as the excitement of her mission, her vital task. And she has to do a lot of last-minute research also, finding out everything about the legendary Ken Kenawasha. Jason explained more between bouts of coughing, Art Rat had been provided with an unprecedented scoop. Art Rat was the only British magazine granted access for an interview with Ken Kenawasha. Who is Ken Kenawasha? Bethany asked. Jason looked at her in frank astonishment. That's like saying, who is Mickey Mouse? Who is Nelson Mandela? I'm sorry, but I've never heard of Ken Kenawasha. Kenzo Kenawasha is only the most famous photographer in Japan, Jason said. Maybe in the world, he went on. After nearly 30 years of silence, there was a new Kenawasha exhibition opening in New York, and a new book. And we, Art Rat, have been chosen, Jason said. Have you any idea what this opportunity means? It's going to put us so much on the map that we might as well be the map. Exciting. The interview's tomorrow afternoon. That's why you have to fly tonight. Bethany feels a new adrenaline pulse. Maybe this is a sign. Everything is going to change for her now. After years of frustration, wrong turnings, it's like being given a new set of credentials, she thinks. Who did that amazing interview with Ken Kenawasha for Artrat? Didn't you hear? It was Bethany Melmoth. If the whole team hadn't fallen ill, she thinks, if Jason hadn't been hospitalized, if she hadn't remained healthy. Sometimes, Bethany thinks, the world does indeed move in mysterious ways. Sometimes you do get lucky. She feels good. It's exciting. And she's going to do a brilliant job and make her name. She begins to leaf through the selection of Ken Kenawasha clippings that she downloaded and printed off. She's disturbed by a late arrival who slides into the middle seat beside her. Damn, she thinks, and concentrates on her article. I know, it's a pain. I hate it when you think you have an empty seat 
and some late arrival turns up. The accent is American. She looks round. A young guy sits there, about her age, Japanese, with his glossy black hair cut in an immaculate eyebrow-length beetle fringe. He's wearing wide orange and sand check trousers cut to mid-calf, white tennis socks, shop-fresh heavy-soled black trainers, and a tight-fitting ribbed rubberized green jacket. Very 22nd century, Bethany thinks, and flashes a thin smile. Don't worry about me, he says. I plan on sleeping throughout the flight. I've got a lot of work to do, she says, noticing that beneath the stupid fringe he has lean, even, handsome features. Once airborne and en route for Tokyo, as they eat their evening meal, they inevitably end up talking. I couldn't help noticing you're working on Ken Kenawasha, he says. Awesome. A true goat. I'm interviewing him tomorrow. It's hard to express what pleasure she experiences in uttering these words. The young man feigns a swoon. You're kidding me. Nope. Tomorrow afternoon. The young man introduces himself. Andy. With an I, he stipulates. Bethany. With a Y, Bethany says. Andy laughs. He has a sense of humor. So, you're a journalist. Yes, she says, but I'm really a photographer. And I've done a bit of acting. I was in a movie. She decides not to tell him about all her other jobs. Gallerina, minicab dispatcher, novelist, conjurer's assistant. Andy confesses to being a permanent student. His parents live in California, but he went to Princeton, then did his master's at Yale. Now he's at Oxford doing a doctorate. Brainy, Bethany says. Yeah, I have brains to spare. What's your doctorate on? Don't die of excitement. I'm bracing myself, she says. The social consequences of mining legislation in South Yorkshire, 1845 to 1893. Pretty obscure, Bethany says. The obscurer, the better, Andy says. Only two other people in the world know as much about mid-19th century English mining legislation as I do, which makes me a world expert by definition. And how many people can say that? It's a fair point. Andy goes on to tell her that as a consequence of his research into the 19th century coal fields, he's developed an interest in the disposal of hazardous materials. There's a fortune to be made, he says, which is why, he tells her, he's going to Tokyo to try and convince his uncle, a very rich man who trades in rubber, to invest in his new company, currently without a name. Think of all those millions of tires that he manufactures, Andy says. But what do you do when the tires are worn out? What do you do with the millions of used tires in the world? Toxic problems are everywhere, and there must be solutions. And people will pay to have those problems solved. Tox-sol, Bethany says. Toxic solutions. That could be the name of your company. T-O-X-S-O-L. Andy writes it down and considers it seriously. You may have something there, he says, thinking hard. Yeah, Toxol Incorporated. After their trays are cleared, Andy says he's going to sleep. He takes two pills, puts on an eye mask and a face mask, wraps himself in a blanket with the seatbelt fastened on the outside and tips his chair back. 
Do you want one of these pills, he asks. They're incredible. Sleep like a baby, no side effects. I have to work on Ken Kenawasha. Awesome. Four, the hotel. As Bethany stands in the arrival concourse of Narita Airport, wondering how best to travel to the city, Andy approaches. He offers her a lift. His uncle has sent a car to collect him. Bethany is pleased to accept. I almost didn't recognize you, he says. All that blonde hair, wow. Bethany had kept her hair up under her beanie cap during the flight and had shaken it free once she was through customs. Natural blonde or shop-bought? Natural. I have hair to spare. Andy is wearing a silver raincoat and a peaked forage cap pushed back on his head. The effect is somehow to make his perfect beetle fringe look more evident. Not a good look for a handsome young man, Bethany thinks. Fringes should be banned on all males over ten years old, in her opinion. What hotel are you staying at? Andy asks. The Mandarin Oriental. No, I said, what hotel are you staying at? The Mandarin Oriental. Okay, I'm impressed. In the Mercedes, Bethany tells him more about the reasons for her short trip, the office-wide illness, the need to keep the interview securely within the Art Rat team, the fear of piracy precluding the sending of any more experienced freelance. So I get this quick trip to Tokyo, she says. Lucky me. When do you go back? Andy asks. Maybe we could have dinner or something. I go back tomorrow morning. No way. Maybe I could see you in London. Or you could come to Oxford. His phone rings. It's his uncle. As he talks in Japanese, Bethany looks out at the misty rainy morning as the car sweeps them into Tokyo on an elevated expressway between cliff faces of plate glass and steel. Every building seems the same, but it's not that. Something else isn't right. They surge down a ramp to street level. People hurry along, bowed beneath umbrellas. Yellow ginkgo trees drop leaves on the pavement like fat gold confetti. Now she realized what was unsettling her. No graffiti. Andy finishes his call. Where are we, Bethany asks. I mean, where in Tokyo? Nihonbashi, Andy says. This is where Tokyo began. Nihonbashi, Bethany thinks. I'm in Nihonbashi, Tokyo. The car turns into a cavernous arrivals area under a giant tower. A long water feature to one side plashes away, competing with the rain, now hammering down. She steps out of the car and her bag is taken from her. Andy steps out also, looking around. I've never been to this hotel, he says. First for me, also. Andy gives her his card. Andy G. Sakura, it says. Jesus College, Oxford. It has his mobile phone number printed on it. I'm afraid I don't have a card, Bethany says, but I can give you my number. She does so, and Andy taps it into his phone. Good luck with Ken, Andy says. Can I have a hug? To her surprise, Bethany lets him hug her half-hugging him back. He feels very thin. Just to say thank you for Toxol. My pleasure. I'll call you. 5. The Room 
Bethany stands alone in her room, still stunned by the ear-popping swiftness of the elevator ride to the very top of the tower at whose foot she'd arrived. Stunned by the lobby, by its carefully pondered design, its textures and tones, trying not to gawp at the immense scale and dark luminosity as she crossed the floor to the check-in desks. Wood, clean lines, marble, great volumes of empty air, vertiginous expanses of plate-glass windows form mezzanine walls on two sides, some sort of modernistic art installation in the seating area stretching up to the high ceiling, the sound of water falling, a fountain, a pond somewhere, lights glowing softly in the murk of the rainstorm lashing the vast plate-glass windows high in the clouds, smiling uniformed people taking the details of her credit card, welcoming her to the hotel and the city, a quietness pervading the nurtured, discreetly curated space. It was all like something from a dream, she thought. But now, secure in her room, she began to focus more sharply, a wide bed, a folded green kimono-style dressing gown laid upon it, her own bonsai tree, an amber bottle of tea as a present, a kind of pleated shining fabric on the wall. She thinks of her current abode, her two rooms in the basement of her mother's house in Fulham, thinks of its mess, clutter and serial disorder, and decides to change her life. She sighs and goes to the window. Later, later, she thinks. Concentrate on the here and now. She has a job to do. This is not some kind of life-altering detox clinic she's visiting. She's on the 31st floor now, having descended from the lobby seven floors higher. The view outside still is obscured by silvery-grey clouds and mist, all of which adds to the feeling that she's in some giant stationary UFO hovering above the endless, impossible city spread below her at her feet. On the desk is a letter, addressed to Mr. Jason Mason. She opens it. The letterhead is the Bosendorfer Gallery, New York. She knows this is Ken's gallery. The message is brief. Dear Jason, please call me on arrival. I've been trying to reach you without success. Cordially, Morag de Comblain. There is a number below. Bethany shoves her little suitcase in a cupboard, has a pee and washes her face. She'll be out of here in 24 hours. Concentrate, girl, concentrate. She calls Morag de Comblain's number. Where the hell is Jason? is Morag's first irritated question. She has a curiously half-American, half-European accent. Spain, France, Germany, or further east, Romania, Ukraine. He's in hospital, Bethany says. Don't they have phones in hospital in England? Has his cell been confiscated? He's seriously ill with pneumonia. He's on a drip. That's why he sent me. It's just not professional. I'm sure he's sorry he can't crawl from his sickbed. Bethany regrets her tone instantly. Is that meant to be some kind of a joke? He's devastated not to be here, Bethany says. He wanted me to tell you. Morag calms down and explains slowly. There has been a change of plan. First, Bethany has to go to the Bosendorfer Tokyo Gallery in Rapongi Hills. Then she will be taken to a new venue for the interview. Bethany writes everything down. We need you there by 1400 hours. Copy that. I'm sorry? Nothing. I'll be there, she says. 
Bethany puts her phone down and sits on the bed, sensing the euphoria and the excitement of arrival drain away. For some reason, she's beginning to have bad feelings about this assignment. 6. The Work Ken Kenawasha's latest, possibly final, project was entitled 365 Days in the World. Bethany sits in Bosendorfer Tokyo's main gallery space with 16 other journalists reading the lengthy document that has been given them on arrival. The walls are artwork free, just a stark white contrasting with the granite floor. The journalists are sitting on chairs arranged before a lectern as if about to attend a seminar. Glancing around her carefully, Bethany realizes that her fellow journalists are all men and all middle-aged to her eyes. She has spoken to a Swede, two Italians and a Mexican, perfectly friendly, but who all asked her where Jason was while they were served coffee and tea. The group is composed of eminent art correspondents for their various international newspapers and magazines. The words out of your depth keep flashing in the recesses of Bethany's brain like the malfunctioning neon sign in the art rat offices. Say as little as possible, she advises herself, watching a woman enter through a side door and stride across the granite to the lectern. Morag de Comblan, she assumes. Morag is a handsome, starved-looking woman in her fifties, impossibly chic, in a short-jacketed ultramarine silk suit and very high heels. Her swept-back, dense black hair has a matching ultramarine streak in it, she puts on a pair of heavy tortoise-shell spectacles and consults the dossier on the lectern. Welcome, gentlemen, she says. Bethany gets the message. Morag informs the assembled journalists in her strange Euro-Americanese that Mr. Kenawasha is unwell. He is 83 years old, she reminds him, and will be conducting the interviews from his house, a two-hour drive from Tokyo. A bus has been laid on to transfer the international press thither. There is a little susurrus of irritation in the room at this news, but Morag is having nothing of it. You will have the opportunity to study the work on the journey. Copies of the new book will be handed out on the bus, she says. They must be returned on departure. She goes on to remind everyone of the rigid copyright restrictions on Mr. Kenawasha's responses to the questions asked. There must be a clear copyright designation. Answers copyright Ken Kenawasha. And then the bombshell is dropped. Owing to Mr. Kenawasha's indisposition, she says, you will all be restricted to three questions only. This does provoke mild outrage and protest, but Morag is unapologetic. Any of you unhappy with these conditions are, of course, free to leave. Bethany thinks of the 64 questions she had compiled on the plane and mentally tears them up. She is just going to have to improvise, she realises. She wonders what Jason would have done in these circumstances and considers telephoning him to ask advice. But no, this is her assignment. She will carry it out to the best of her ability. Before they leave, Morag hands round another document, a contract, respecting the embargo imposed on publication of the eventual interview and an agreement that the copyright to all quoted answers remains with the Kenawasha Foundation. Everyone signs. No one is leaving. The one advantage of the bus journey, it is still raining heavily, 
is that Bethany now understands what Ken Kanawasha has been working on. 365 days in the world is more or less what it says it is, a record of an entire year with one photograph representing each day. The intriguing aspect of the concept is that it is all, in the words of the introduction to the book, random and aleatory. A camera has been set up in front of a widescreen TV set, posed against a window in the Kenawasha home. A computerized timing device, driven by an algorithm, switches on the TV to one of 275 international TV channels and the camera automatically takes a picture, in color, of what is revealed there. Another day rolls by and, at another moment of the 24-hour cycle, another picture is taken of whatever another selected TV station happens to be broadcasting. 365 images, 365 pages reproduced in the handsome, glossy, heavy volume sitting in her lap. Curiously, Bethany thinks, for something that seems so automated and artist-free, the result is oddly compelling. At the end of the book, she feels she has lived through that particular year. Sometimes, through the window beyond the TV set, night has fallen, or it is dawn or midday. Cars and people are visible, seasons come and go. The trees in Mr. Kenawasha's garden shed their leaves. There's a snowy period, and then spring slowly arrives. Leaves grow on the bare branches, shrubs thicken, flowers bloom in borders. By the time we are back in the summer, the complex history of the planet Earth in this particular recorded cycle of 365 days is, paradoxically, revealed in astonishing depth and texture. News reports, advertisements, all the sports the world plays, wrestling, dressage, lacrosse, football, swimming, soap operas, black and white movies, weather forecasts, game shows, reality TV shows, cataclysmic natural disasters, children's puppets, traffic snarl-ups, atrocities, election broadcasts, natural history documentaries, and so on and so on. It seems everything on the teeming planet is somehow revealed against this steady backdrop of the endless revolution of the seasons in Ken Kenawasha's garden. Where's the artistry, the virtuosity, the careful selection, Bethany rather condescendingly thinks as she first turns the pages. But by the end of the 365 images, she realizes only an artist could have thought up this mad scheme. 83-year-old Ken Kenawasha's swan song is a bizarrely appropriate portrait of the world he will shortly be quitting. Bethany looks at his photograph on the inside cover of the sleeve and feels a kind of emotion well up in her that is hard to describe. A sort of sadness, she analyzes, underpinned by creeping admiration and the astonishment for all the impossibly variegated life on display. She stares at the photograph and sees an elderly man, slim, with a full head of perfectly white hair and a matinee idol's toothbrush moustache. He has a half-smile on his face. His eyes are swagged with wrinkles, eyes that have seen everything, she thinks. 7. The Interview Ken Kenawasha lives on the edge of a small town to the north of Tokyo called Shinagane. His house is modest, two-storey, cream, weatherboarded, with a shallow pitched roof, indistinguishable from all the other houses in the neighbourhood, apart from the vast parabola of a TV receiver dish on its roof. 
It looks like you could receive messages from deep space, Bethany thinks. A marquee has been rigged up in the garden where the journalists gather and await their turn to interview the maestro. There's a buffet with strange small buns and sandwiches at one end, urns for tea and coffee, and copious bottles of water, still and sparkling. It's almost instantly clear to Bethany that a hierarchy is operating. The journalists are being granted access to the great man by order of the importance and influence of their medium. Bethany will therefore be last, she realises. She eats about six sandwiches and drinks too much coffee. The sound of the rain on the canvas or the plastic of the tent's roof is soothing. She finds herself nodding off and forces herself awake, ruthlessly redacting her 64 questions to a humble three. The afternoon dawdles by. Halfway through, a bus arrives to take some of the journalists who have completed their interview back to Tokyo. The numbers in the tent diminish. Bethany takes a stroll in the garden, is allowed to visit a toilet in the house. Dusk encroaches. Finally, she's alone in the tent. She begins to feel a little sick with apprehension, as if she's being summoned to the headmaster's office. She brushes her hair and reapplies her lipstick. An assistant, a tiny Japanese woman, arrives with a clipboard. Jason Mason, she asks. That's me, Bethany says. She follows the woman into the house. In the front room, the room with the TV set and the view of the garden, Morag de Comblain is waiting. Her smile is quick and cold. Please sit there. Bethany sits down. Across a glass coffee table, there's an empty armchair opposite her. You may activate your recording equipment. Bethany clicks on her small digital recorder, supplied by Jason, and her phone as a backup. She places them on the glass table and takes out her list of three questions. She feels nervous. Maybe she should have put her hair up and removed her lipstick. She clears her throat, quickly reading through her questions. To what extent does your particular automated method in 365 days vitiate or encourage the idea of photography as the artless art? When it comes to monochrome or colour photography, what choices drive you? The door opens, and Morag de Comblain leads in Ken Kenawasha. He's a small, neat man, walking slowly with evident difficulty, with two sticks, wearing jeans and a white shirt with the sleeves rolled up. He smiles and sits down. This is Melanie from Art Rat, a very crucial, happening, cutting-edge English magazine, Morag says, taking Ken's walking sticks away. Hello, Ken says. Lovely to meet you, Bethany says, standing up. She leans over the table and they shake hands. His hand feels dry and calloused, like a manual worker's. I like your hair, he says. Natural blonde, the best. He speaks good English with a slight Japanese accent. Thank you, Bethany says. I like your hair too. Ken chuckles and runs a calloused palm over his head. At least it's still there, he says. These are running, Bethany points to her phone and recorder. May I begin? Yes. I hope this isn't too exhausting for you. Are you tired? No, Ken smiles. Where are you from, he asks. London. Have you ever been there? Oh, yes. Now, what I was first wanting to ask was this. 
do you think your particular automated method in 365 days vitiates or encourages? Sorry, but I think that happens to be your fourth question, Morag says, standing up. Thank you very much, but rules are rules. The other journalists were scrupulous. Is this some kind of sick farce? What the hell, Michiko? Morag calls. The tiny Japanese woman appears in a second. Take Miss Millstone to the bus. Is that it? Ken says, clearly puzzled. You're all done for today, sir, Morag says brightly. Michiko's hand is on Bethany's elbow. She stands, confused. What's happening? Ken Kenawasha is disappearing out the door and Morag de Comblan is handing Bethany her phone and her recorder. She lowers her voice and points a sharp finger at Bethany. Her tone is pure, visceral malice. When you get back to London, you can tell that scumbag Jason Mason that nobody does this to Morag de Comblan. Nobody. Never. With that, she strides out of the door following Ken. Bethany feels tears of frustration and rage warm her eyes. Please, the bus for Tokyo is this way, Michiko says. 8. Plan B Traffic is bad returning from Shinagane, and Bethany doesn't reach the Mandarin Oriental until well after dark. She has sat numbly in the bus in a state of trembling, furious shock, trying to work out what had happened, trying to understand the unique tensions between the vile Morag woman and Jason and what perceived terrible insult had occurred. It was almost like a lover's revenge, she suddenly thinks, the way Morag entrapped her and then punished her. And then that bile, the deep hurt expressed. Could Morag and Jason be having an... She stops herself, but her brain refuses to function logically. All that keeps coming to mind is one word, like a headline in a tabloid newspaper. Disaster. She rides the lift to the huge lobby, feeling its space and its perfect shadowy light enfold her almost like a cathedral nave. If there were an altar, she thinks, she would light a candle to herself and pray for her miserable soul. What will Jason say when he finds out? In her room, she plays back her perfectly recorded encounter. She has her three answers. Yes, no, and oh yes. This is what she has flown all the way to Japan and back for. She goes to the minibar and necks the small bottle of whiskey she finds there straight down. She coughs, her chest warm. She sits down. Ten o'clock at night in Tokyo, one o'clock in the afternoon in London. Should she call Jason? No, a thousand times no. She needs to think this through. In front of her is the little bonsai tree with a parchment explicatory note beside it. The tree is about six inches high, but its tiny trunk is gnarled and twisted as if it's decades old. The rubric on the parchment tells her that the bonsai master transfers the tree to a smaller pot every three years to maintain its size. The technique creates the form of a much larger tree while preserving its minuscule stature. So that's the trick with bonsai, she thinks, seeing at once the awful parallels with her own life. She's leading a bonsai life, she realises. Fate, filthy rotten luck, transfers her to a series of smaller pots while she ages but does not grow. 
This trip, this encounter, was meant to be her big break, was meant to change her fortunes, Lady Luck smiling on her, ha, bloody ha. She searches the minibar for another bottle and comes up with some vodka. I know, she thinks, I'll resign before he can sack me. Bethany does not sleep well. She endlessly rewrites her resignation letter in her head. At one stage she goes to the desk, writes three pages and tears them up. She dozes but dreams about Morag de Comblan and the venom in her face as she spat out her words. She had planned this all along, the devil woman, planned her revenge on Jason Mason. Bethany Melmoth was a collateral damage, too bad. When light begins to glow beyond the blind and the curtains, Bethany presses the button by her bed and, magically, they glide apart and the blind disappears upward with a quiet whine. How wonderful! And the sun is shining, mockingly. She goes to the window and looks out over dawn-lit Tokyo, stretching to the horizon, block after glass and steel block. The colours of the myriad buildings seem to blend and complement each other, greys, beiges, brown, silver, the odd shade of green. It's like, she thinks, screwing up her eyes to make the vista lose focus, it's like a gigantic pebble beach, except the pebbles aren't round, they're rectangular. Feeling hungry, she searches for the room service menu but finds instead some information about the Mandarin Oriental Spa. A spa. It opens at 6.30am, the booklet informs her. She checks the time, 6.25. That's what she needs. The spa is calling. As she heads for the spa, her phone rings. She pauses. It's Andy. Sorry to call so early, he says cheerfully, but I know you have a plane to catch. So, how did it go? Unmitigated disaster, she says flatly. She gives him the grim gist of her day. God, bummer, he says. You didn't see that coming. Damn right, she says bitterly. She changes the subject. How about you? How did Toxol go? It went very well, he says. I think we may be on. You brought me luck. I wish I could bring myself some luck. I owe you, he says. Come to Oxford and I'll buy you dinner. Maybe she will, she thinks. She's curiously drawn to Andy and his brains. But the beetle fringe will have to go. Hey, he says, interrupting her thoughts. It just struck me. Everyone has questions, everyone, but very few people have the answers. I don't follow, she says. You have the asset, the answers. So, rethink the questions. Put the answers to work. Bingo. Plan B. In the spa there's a pool, neck deep, warm to the temperature of your blood. Bethany is provided with the swimming costume and lies in the steaming spa water up to her neck, looking out at Tokyo and the long finger of the sky tree tower pointing up to the cloudless blue sky. Onwards and upwards, it seems to say. Maybe Andy is right. She has all the answers, for once. 9. Homeward Bound Bethany has her laptop out. Half an hour into the flight to London, the soothing hum of the jets is oddly inspiring. She knows now what to tell Jason. Run some photos and a summary of the Ken Kenawasha career. Then an account of the 365 days concept. Pages and pages of text and photographs. And then her scoop. Three questions for Ken Kenawasha. 
Are you happy? Yes. Do you think you've achieved everything you can with 365 days of the world? No. Is love the one thing that everyone on earth is searching for? Oh yes. Bethany smiles. It'll work. She knows Jason will go for it, especially when she tells him about Morag de Comblan and her filthy plot. She types her final words. Answers, copyright, Kenzo Kenawasha. Questions, copyright, Bethany Melmoth. The End <laughs>